Good morning, class. It looks like uh, we're thin this morning. A lot of people are returning from the holiday, but I'm glad you're here this morning. We've got a lot to cover today, and I think it'll be interesting to you. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin with the Philadelphia church. We addressed a little bit of it last time. We want to go back and review that. And then uh, we'll be preparing ourselves today to go into chapter 4 and chapter 5 next Lord's Day. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. I want to read uh, some of it, and then we'll deal with the passage, that uh, the latter part of the passage for our lesson today. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia... We understand that term. We talked about the meaning of each of the towns where there's a church located that are addressed in Asia Minor in Revelation 3. Philadelphia, as you probably know, know, means brotherly love. And so the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, and here comes the credentials of the Lord Jesus coming from chapter 1 and the vision of Christ that is found there. Notice, he is holy, uh, who is true or trustworthy, and who has the key of David, who opens and no man will shut, and he shuts and no man opens, saith this. So we have the Lord Jesus, who is holy, who is trustworthy, and he has absolute authority. He, can, uh, he has uh, the ability to shut or to open as he f- sees fit. And no man can change what he does. His commendation to the church at Philadelphia. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door. Now, we talked about that last time. Throughout the New Testament, there is the mention of an open door for ministry. And that's what they have here. And I should remind you that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about an open door But that's an open door Paul, under the direction of the Spirit of God, did not walk through. The point being, uh, like uh, when I was a pastor, I would not necessarily uh, go in every direction where people contacted me and asked me to consider coming because I didn't feel like that was the direction of the Lord. But all the rest of the New Testament references to an open door are where... uh, the, the uh, Lord has opened a way for ministry. So that, and that is the case here. I know your deeds, verse 8. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no man can shut, because, now watch it, here's the reason why they have an open door. You have a little power. We talked about that's not a negative comment. You have some power. Most of the churches don't. This is a church that we would consider the missionary church age. And he has opened a door. And churches all across our country, and especially here and now in, uh, in uh, other countries as well, Korea being a major one, is sending missionaries around the world. Uh, but we suggested the missionary age of the church is beginning to wane. But notice, you have a little power and have kept my word. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, unbelievers, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. 
Eventually, those unbelievers, Jews in particular, are going to recognize that the believers are the children of God. And I often say that when I'm preaching, child of God. And I, I just got a note the other day from a lady saying, oh, I appreciate your teaching and I remember child of God. I never will forget I'm a child of God. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, then notice in verse 10, and here's where we rapidly have moved. We want to talk about this open door, but in particular, the promise that is given at this point in this church. Because you have kept the word, you've guarded the word there, as well as believed it and obeyed it. Um, kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Now notice that. That, uh, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now notice what he says. This church is going to be protected from the test that is coming. And I want you to see that what he's talking about here is the tribulation period that we begin to get in, uh, introduced to in chapter 4 and 5 where you have the heavenly senior a scene where the father is supervising and the son is carrying out the judgments of the tribulation. He says to them in verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, I want you to notice all the words that are particularly used to emphasize that we're talking about a worldwide testing that we refer to and other passages refer to as the Great Tribulation. Notice what it says. He says, this testing is going to be at a specific time, the hour. That hour is not talking about 30 minutes. It's talking about that time frame. That terminology is used a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You're going to be protected from the hour, and then it says, there's, so not only is there a specific time, but there's also a specific trial. Notice what it says. The hour of, watch it now, it's not in the English, but it's in the Greek text. It says, from the hour of the testing, the particular testing. Now, why it doesn't show up in the English, I can't tell you. But uh, it, uh, it is in the, the Greek text. So we have a specific time. We have a specific trial. We have a specific uh, scope of this testing. Notice what it says. The hour of the testing, that hour which is about to come, to come upon the whole world. So it's going to be a worldwide test. Then there's a specific target. What does it say? To test those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. So it's a test for the whole world to test the people that are living on the earth at that time. Then there's a specific promise that is made. Notice what it says. Uh, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you, keep you. And the idea is not take care of you while you're in it. But the Greek text actually uses the uh, little preposition, ek, which means out of. In other words, I'm going to keep you out of it. You're not going into it. You're not going to experience it. You're going to escape it. 
I'm going to keep you out of this worldwide testing that is about to come. Uh, and, uh, and then he says in verse 11, I come quickly, hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will uh, make him a pillar in my temple of the temple of God, and he will not go out from it. He'll be in communion with God on a regular basis. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from my God, and my new name. He that has ear, let him hear. So, class, what we have here is that promise of protection from the tribulation period. Now, I'm going to tell you some things now that are not necessarily found in this text, but it is a perfect time frame for it to occur because the very next church that is mentioned is Laodicea, and that's the uh, apostate church, and it describes, and we'll look at it before the end of the hour, it describes the Lord Jesus as standing outside and knocking on the door And if anybody will let me in, I'll come in and fellowship with you. In other words, it is a church that is not in any kind of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ at all. Point. These are people in a church that are unsaved people. That's why it's the apostate church. Now, point. We're in the Philadelphia church. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And then we have the Laodicean church. They will go through it. Why? It's an unbelieving church. Everybody with me? Now, the point being, there are those, child of God, uh, and there are those churches that are apostate even now. We've got churches that are filled with unbelievers. And they call themselves Christians. And, but the point that I think you need to understand is, As you look at these seven churches, please remember you're talking about different types of churches, but and they exist, all of them, at any given time, I believe, in the church age, but they are also chronological. In other words, it starts with the church in Ephesus where they leave their first love, and it ends up with the church at Laodicea, and Jesus is standing outside, will anybody let me in? Okay, so that's the progression that's going to occur. Now, with the emphasis on the fact that uh, the, the Philadelphia church is going to miss out on the tribulation, I want to suggest to you that the rapture of the church occurs in this chronological framework between the Philadelphia church and the Laodicea church. The believers are all taken out. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. First of all, as you look at the book of Revelation, we have all of these references, child of God, to the church in the first three chapters. But when you get to chapter 4, you do not hear the word or read the term church again until you get to chapter 22 and verse 16, and you're in the New Jerusalem. So, all during the description of the tribulation period, the church is not there. They're mentioned through chapter 3, then they 
it is never mentioned again until you get to chapter 22 and uh, uh, the New Jerusalem. Everybody with me? So the absence of mention implies, I think, that there is no church except the uh, apostate Laodicean church in the tribulation period. Now, with that in mind, if I make that suggestion, I draw that as an implication from this text. Do I have other passages, child of God, that would verify that the church does not go through the tribulation? In other words, to state it theologically, are there New Testament passages that say to us that there is what we call the pre-tribulational rapture, the pre-trib rapture? There's the pre-millennial second coming, but we have here the pre-trib rapture of the church. Now, I'm going to depart from Revelation. I'm going to come back to it. But I want us to look at a number of passages to try to undergird this implication that I think comes out of the text. The first passage I want you to go to is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, those of you who are very familiar with the scripture, you know that chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians is dealing with the rapture. And it begins in verse 13. I'm going to read through the actual description very quickly, because where I want to go is chapter 5. Now, notice what it says. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, people that have died. I've got a son that's with the Lord. I've got grandparents that are with the Lord on both sides of the family and so on. Uh, And they were believers. So they are asleep that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, there's the rest of the world that has no hope after death. For we, if we believe, verse 14, here's his reason for saying it. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so will God bring him uh, with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Point. When Jesus comes back to take us into heaven, he's going to bring all of those uh, people who have died in Christ or are safe in Christ like my son Timothy. He's going to bring them with him, the text says. For this uh, we say to you, verse 15, uh, to you by way of the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, we are alive, the Lord Jesus would come today. He's going to bring all of those saints that have died. He's going to bring them with him. And those who are alive, that's us, and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede, not go before those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's going to bring the uh, believers who have died with him. And those believers that are here on the earth, he says, we're not going to get to see Jesus before those who have died. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, When you talk about a person dying, you're talking about absence from the body present with the Lord. My son, I'll use my son Tim again. He's buried in uh, Petersburg, Virginia where I was stationed at Fort Lee after coming back from Vietnam. He's an Agent Orange baby. And so he had multiple birth defects and all of that. And so uh, he's buried there. Well, when the Lord brings him back, what is he going to do? His 
bodies coming out of the grave. That's taken care of before he starts fooling with us. Everybody got it? Now, look what he says. And he says, and we are alive and remain, verse 15, uh, until the coming of the Lord shall not uh, be uh, precede those who have fallen asleep. They'll get their bodies. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of the voice of the ark, voice of the archangel and trump of God, and, watch it, the dead in Christ will rise first. Tim will come out of the grave, get his body. He'll be reunited with his body. Don't ask me what kind of body it's going to be like. I don't have the slightest idea. Just know it's going to be in his body. Then, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. In other words, he's going to take us up. And by the way, this becomes our resurrection, if you please. We get our new body at that point because the Lord's going to take us back to heaven. So the dead in Christ get their bodies first. Then we are changed, 1 Corinthians 15 says. We have a body that is changed. Now notice what he says. Therefore, verse 18, those of you who have been worried about uh, loved ones that are believers and have died, therefore comfort one another with these words. This is what's going to happen. Comfort one another with these words. And my wife and I take great comfort that we're going to see our Tim in, uh, in, uh, in the future if the Lord would come while we're still alive. Amen? Now, there's the rapture of the church. But you see, what I want you to see is, when does the text say that occurs? Do we have a time frame to work with? Chapter 5. Look at it. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, look up here. The day of the Lord as a thief in the night. Whenever you see the description that Christ is coming back like a thief, you know he's coming back in judgment. All right? And that's what's going on here. He's coming back in judgment. And we know he's coming like a thief. We don't know when it's going to happen, but he is ready to judge. Now look what he says. You know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. What do you mean? Well, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly with birth pangs. Of a, upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. Now watch it. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. You're believers. You're watching for it to come. For you are the sons of the light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night and the darkness, that is, when the thief comes. So then, let us not sleep. Let's be aware. Stay alert. Keep watching. Uh, be, uh, be not asleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night when the thief comes, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and of love and the helmet of salvation. Why? 
Because God has not destined us for the wrath. Got it? The the text is saying to us, when the wrath of God comes, the great tribulation, we are not destined for that. So stay awake and keep looking for the Lord Jesus. Don't be like the rest of the world, not paying any attention, and they get caught off guard. You know better. Now act like it. Now, we don't always do that as believers. But the point of the text is, that's what we ought to be doing because we are of the day, not of the night. We are not destined for the day of the Lord and the wrath that is to come in the tribulation. Everybody with me? You see that? Now, are you? Everybody understand what we're saying? Okay. Now, I want to show you another one. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, again, what are we talking about? We're talking about when the Lord comes back to get us. And in the church at Thessalonica, there were people that didn't understand like they should have. They didn't listen to the Apostle Paul when he was teaching. And so they start worrying about their loved ones who have died. Now, he explains they're going to go to heaven uh, and, uh, and uh, get their, come down from heaven and get their new bodies, and we're going to go up uh, with them to meet the Lord near, and that's all going to happen before the day of the wrath. Why? Because we believers are not part of that. Now, when you get to Second Thessalonians, it's a little bit different approach. In chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, they're worried about it. In chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, there's some false teaching that teaches that kind of thing. So it's progressed. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that is the rapture, our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, that's a false prophecy, or a message or a letter as if it was from us. Evidently, somebody had forged the letter, making it a letter from Paul, and it was teaching this false doctrine. And Paul says, don't you worry about it. I didn't send that letter. Okay? Now, notice, or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the lay of the Lord has come. Look at that. We're in the tribulation. They don't understand the tribulation very well if they think that. But the point is, that's a false teaching that's going on. Now, as a result of Paul of that, Paul is going to give us some chronological uh, development of uh, that leads to the day of the Lord. Notice what he says. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now look up here. The apostasy is the falling away of uh, people from belief. Now we mentioned to you the Laodicean church is the full-blown church of apostasy with Jesus standing outside the door and knocking and wanting people to come in. But you also have got to know that the church is building up to that. 
And when you recognize that, he is saying, hey, you are going to have to understand that the day of the Lord doesn't come until that full-blown apostasy is, is occurring. Notice what else he says. Comes first, and then the lawless one is revealed. Now, the lawless one is the Antichrist, uh, who is revealed in the, the tribulation period. And by the way, he is revealed. That's an aorist passive Greek verb form, which means once and for all, outside force working. That is, the apostasy working on the church uh, allows this one to come. <coughs> the, law, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of the... Uh, of destruction. The day of the Lord comes when the apostasy is there and the Antichrist is allowed to get involved in the world, in the church. Who, and this one, opposes <coughs> and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Observation. The Antichrist is not just anti-Christian. He's anti-every religion in the world. Why? He wants to be the God of this world. Amen? So the day of the Lord can't come until you've got this apostasy. The day of the Lord is not here until this this person is revealed. Now notice, he ex- verse 4, he opposes, he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits, uh, takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In other words, he goes into Jerusalem. He's going to be a worldwide God, uh, at, but he is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem displaying himself as being God. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know who restrains him so that in his time he may be revealed. Now, let's stop there. This Antichrist who is going to be revealed is already in operation, possibly. In other words, he's a man who's going to be born, have mom and daddy. They're going to raise him up. They're going to discipline him, whatever. He's going to have religious training, possibly. He's going to have political background. He's going to be a normal human being. And not until all of a sudden he's recognized for who he is, that's his revelation. But he's if the Lord Jesus if his coming is close, that person is living today. We just don't know who he is. Everybody with me? Now notice what he says. (coughs) And you know what restrains him now. In other words, he's already wanting to move. He's already wanting to take control. But God is holding him back by a restraint. A restrainer. Now, who would that restrainer be? 
If you go to Galatians chapter 5, and I think I'd like for you to do that. Hold your place here. (coughs) I'm so sorry. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5. I want you to see what the text says about the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Now notice what the text says and get the implication. But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and what will happen? You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh wants to uh, sin. The flesh wants to rebel against the will of God. If you walk in the power of the Spirit, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Notice verse 17. For, here's the explanation, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. That's the human spirit. I think I've tried to help you to see that. It's got a uh, uppercase S, but I think it's the human spirit. In other words, look up here. You've got, you've got your flesh that is the old nature, but you also have a spirit that God's put in you that uh, causes you to want to relate to him. But you've got this flesh that says, absolutely not. I want to be autonomous. I don't want anybody ruling over me. So the flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh, so that you, because of that battle going on in your life, cannot do what you want to according to the Spirit. Notice what it says. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition one to the other, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you be led, there you go, uh, by the Spirit, (coughs) you're not under the law. You don't have to worry about obeying the law. Because the Spirit of God is restraining and working in your life. Now go to that passage to try to answer the question, who is the restrainer? When we go back to 1 Thessalonians, (coughs) or 2 Thessalonians, notice what it says. And you know what restrains him. Who is the restrainer? The God of this world is trying to get you to be disobedient. Your flesh is trying to get you to be disobedient. But if you walk in the Spirit, you restrain all of that. So who is the restrainer? The restrainer, child of God, (coughs) is the Holy Spirit. For you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. (coughs) I am so sorry. Verse 4. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Satan is working in this world. He's going to introduce his Antichrist. I'm suggesting that possibly he's already alive today. Satan's been restrained all this time. The Antichrist, if he's alive today, is still being restrained so that he is revealed in his time. In other words, when God's ready for him to be let loose. Notice what it says. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now, he who now restrains 
will do so until he be taken out of the weather, uh, out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. I think he's already here. The question is, when is he going to be revealed? Now, we go through all of that for what purpose? These people think they're already in the day of the Lord. And Paul says, guys, I taught you in 1 Thessalonians about that in chapter 4 and 5. We're not destined to, to wrath. We're children of the light. And now he's saying, listen, this day of the Lord that you think you're in, the apostasy hasn't taken over yet. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it, 1 Thessalonians is one of the earlier epistles. We've got a lot of the New Testament to be written yet. This, this church is not filled with apostasy at this point in history. And uh, he is saying to us, and, and the Antichrist hadn't been revealed yet. We have no idea who he is. Okay? Point. This would suggest I think by implication, what we call a pre-tribulation or rapture of the church. Everybody with me? Now, <clears throat> when I keep talking to you about the apostasy, I think we need to look at that a little bit. What is it talking about when the falling away comes first back in the, in the verse... Um, Three, the falling away, the apostasy comes first. What does that look like? Well, let's look at a couple of passages before we go back to Revelation. Because I think it's important for us to understand. The other side of the coin is we need to understand that the apostasy is already infiltrating the church. You remember Theotira, for example, and that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and they're teaching immorality and we can go and worship at the pagan temples and participate in their immorality and their worship of their God. Apostasy is there, but it's not taking over the church. But we need to see what it looks like. And I want you to go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Here's an example of the apostasy. Notice, verse 1, chapter 4, 1 Timothy. For the Spirit explicitly says, in the latter times, the latter times of the church, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines that have their source in demons. Demons will work through uh, so-called prophets in the church. By means of hypocrisy, of lies, seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. These people are uh, totally involved into apostasy, and it's like they've been branded by it. Then it notice, men who forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, notice that. 
Several things are mentioned. He talks about people who have some kind of uh, food issues, similar to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, only that's carried over into the New in some uh, deceptive way, and abstaining uh, from marriage. Now, I can think of a couple of groups, and I think you probably can too, organizations who say you ought not to eat certain foods, and there are people that ought not to be married. And uh, I think of uh, I think a priest who abstained from marriage, and I think of churches that say you're not supposed to eat certain things. That's the kind of thing that is being talked about here. Deceitful spirits and doctrine that come from demons. Now it gets more specific. Go to chapter or Second Timothy chapter three, verse one to three. Second Second Timothy chapter three, verse one to three. Notice what it says. Here's apostasy again. But realize this, and again, that in the latter days or the end of the church age, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Then watch. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and void such men, avoid such men as these. In other words, here is a church that has doctrines that allows for the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Look at that. Boastful. Disobedient to parents. They have a form of godliness, but they have no real relationship with God. Does that sound familiar to you? I think that already exists in the world today. So that's that's apostasy. I want you to look at one more with me. I think... uh, that will be good. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 of this same book. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They'll look with people, look for people that will say what they believe and do is okay. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, that's the apostasy that is coming uh, in the church uh, in, in the future. Let's look at one more. Go with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Got it? Look at verse 1. Come now, ye rich... Weep and howl for your miseries which are going uh, are coming upon you. Your riches are rotten and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted 
and they and their rust will be a, a witness against you and will consume your flesh like uh, like a fire in the last days. You'll be a gathering riches. Uh, I have a book in my lar- uh, library entitled uh, um, Addiction to Wealth. That's what we're talking about here. There are people who are wealthy, but they keep wanting more. Why? They're addicted not to riches, but the getting of riches. They're never satisfied. That's people today. Look at verse 4. Fraudulence. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mow your fields, which have, uh, with, uh, have been withheld uh, from, uh, by you, cries out against you. The outcry of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. They've taken care of you. They've produced the crops. They've gathered the crops. And you have stolen from them. You haven't paid them like you should have. Then look at extravagance, verse 5. You live luxuriously on the earth, led a, 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 led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And then violence. You have consumed and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer who waits for the precious product of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So you have all of these different verses, child of God, are talking about walking away from the Lord, not living for him, being involved in riches and false doctrines and all of that. That's the apostate church. And it is a description of what is going to, the people that are going to be left to go into the tribulation period. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to go back to our text in Revelation chapter 3. This day of the Lord that is going to come, John tells us in verse 10, the church will be kept out of that. And I'll remind you that beginning in chapter 4, all the way to chapter 22 and verse 16, the church is not mentioned again. It's gone. It's been raptured. And the apostasy has taken over the church. Therefore, when we get to verse 14, and to the church of Laodicea, write. Now, what is the meaning of Laodicea? The Laodicea means, it's, it's a word that's made up two Greek words. People, dekeo, which means judge. You put the two together, and it's people do the judging. In other words, it's no longer God dictating truth. It is man determining what is truth. And that's what's going to be in the church, the Laodicean church. The amen uh, writes, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm. When I think of that, I think of coffee. 
It's not hot. It's not iced coffee, and it's not hot. I put my coffee in the microwave and hit 40 seconds. I want it to be hot. When I go to Starbucks, extra hot. This is lukewarm. It says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, why is that? Uh, one of the reasons why he describes them that way is that when you study the Laodicean church, they're a very wealthy church. They have made a fortune in banking and ISAV and wool and that kind of They're so rich, they had a great earthquake about 35 years prior to this, something like that, and they rebuilt the city all on their own. They didn't ask for any outside help whatsoever. But the problem is they didn't have any water. So they had to pump their water from higher oculus. And it's quite a ways away. So when the water got to them, it was lukewarm. I remember when my wife and I were in um, Odessa in the Ukraine. I taught at the seminary there. That was a communist country. So the government supplies all your needs. Well, they had big boilers in the middle of the city to produce hot water. And it was piped out to the various locations throughout the area. We were at the seminary in the men's dorm, and uh, you'd start hearing the pipes crack. And everybody would run and take a shower if you weren't in class, because if you didn't, the water ended up being cold, because it, it going through all that piping, it ended up being lukewarm or actually cold. That's what's happening here. Now, so he says, I'm going to spew you out of your mouth. You're not for me. You're not against me. You're just kind of lukewarm. And because you say, look at verse 16, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You think you've got it made. You've done all your doctrinal changes and rejected biblical truth and come up with your own standard. You think you are in the know. You do not know, latter part of verse 17, that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, and you're blind, and you're naked. I advise you to buy from me. Now, he goes on to describe how they need to turn to him. Now, class, here's what I'm saying to you this morning. When you look at chapter 5, I'm going to keep you out of the tribulation. Chapter, uh, or chapter uh, 3. Verse, uh, what is it, 7 and following. When you get to verse 13, you've got the Laodicean church. So in between those two churches, the uh, pre-rapture occurs, pre-tribulation rapture occurs. Everybody with me? And that's because the apostasy is coming, but because the church has been faithful, sending out the missionaries, I'm going to take care of you and keep you out of the tribulation. And then all that's left is a church. It is the Laodicean church uh, in the tribulation. And he just simply ignores that church in the tribulation period. It is not mentioned at all. My observation to you today is this. We are going to miss out on all that mess. Why? Because we belong to the Lord Jesus, and he's going to take us out of here before the day of the Lord comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. 
I pray that you'd help us to, to appreciate the fact that we have this promise of being with you before the great wrath of God comes on this earth. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.